It is March 19, 1838, and the good Reverend Herbert Beaver is getting a proper bitch slap. By the Father of Oregon, this is some kick-ass Oregon history. Standing in the middle of nowhere, wondering how to begin, lost between tomorrow and yesterday, between now and then. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click Donate. This is resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, and I'd like to welcome you to a special edition of Kick-Ass Oregon History, When Oregon Was British. This is a dual-purpose podcast. First, this broadcast is the typical, lively, straight-shit podcast you've come to expect from us. Listen to it at home or on your daily naked bike commute, or tuning out the tweakers on the number 12 bus ride. But one of the other things we do at Kick-Ass Oregon History, besides arousing your ear hole, is conducting entertaining historical walking and bus tours of the Beaver State. You can check out a schedule of our upcoming tours and purchase tickets at orhistory.com. So, we also decided to release this podcast as a self-guided tour of one of the Pacific Northwest's greatest historical treasures, the National Park Service's Fort Vancouver, located in the Couve, dude. So head across the river, slip an Oregon microbrew or craft bourbon in your jacket pocket, and join us on our kick-ass tour of Fort Vancouver when Oregon was British. Ladies and gentlemen, ass kickers all, the ghost host of Kick-Ass Oregon History, Mr. Andy Lindbergh. We are Village Green Preservation Society. God save the duck, We will begin our audio tour today at the parking lot as you walk towards the fort. Please consider walking along the path through the ornamental garden, a sampling of some of the plants that may have been grown by the inhabitants here. Notice the hops. More on that later. In the early days of European expansion near the Columbia River, globe-spanning political machinations were being played out from this very location. Global dominance was indeed at stake. Empires would emerge from this very spot. Other empires would wane. In hindsight, we can say that perhaps the British made a last feeble attempt at projecting their might into something akin to economic world supremacy. Right here from the parking lot in the coup. 
at Fort Vancouver. In 1818, Oregon and Washington were obviously quite different than today. A political convention specified temporary joint occupation of the Northwest between Britain and the United States. Both sides sought to establish a verifiable position during this period, as the claim of who supposedly, air quote, discovered the Columbia is somewhat debatable. Now, the United States claimed that one-eyed Bostonian Robert Gray entered the mouth of the Columbia in May of 1792. The British maintained that in October of that same year, that their Captain Vancouver had explored up the river and mapped the waterway all the way up to the Sandy River, not a mere sighting as one-eyed Captain Gray had done. Furthermore, with Hudson's Bay Company outfits extensively trapping and trading in the interior, the British felt that their claim to the territory was quite sturdy. Both sides knew a compromise of sorts would be reached eventually, and both sides attempted to orient their interests for the best possible gain from that anticipated negotiation. The British felt the need to strengthen their positioning on the Columbia River. The Hudson's Bay Company was the greatest tool available at that time for the British to manipulate the diplomatic situation. But the company was also a fiscal enterprise and the officers needed to show a record of earnings for their endeavors, and the situation in the Pacific Northwest was not rosy. The fur trade had proven so unprofitable in the Columbia Department between 1818 and 1821, quote, that several of the leading and most intelligent persons in the country strongly recommended that the company should abandon it altogether, end quote. Hudson's Bay Company Governor George Simpson was so disappointed at the expenditure, he wrote that Everything appears to me on the Columbia on too extended a scale, except the trade. Part of this disappointment was the lack of financial reward of the first Hudson's Bay Company fort on the Columbia, Fort George. The traders at Fort George, at present-day Astoria, Oregon, had not been able or willing to start any local agriculture, so valuable cargo space on ships from Britain was concerned with foodstuffs. Simpson wrote that the traders had shown an extraordinary predilection for European provisions without once looking at or considering the enormous price it costs. All this time they may be said to have been eating gold. But ultimately, these presumed losses were weighed against the benefit of having Hudson's Bay fur trading outposts in the Northwest, specifically along the Columbia River, fortifying British claims in the region. The company needed a better posture on this mighty river. Let's now move inside the stockade. As you stand inside the stockade, please consider the placement of this fort for a moment. 
anticipating that the dividing line between British and American territory in the Pacific Northwest would be the Columbia River, the Hudson's Bay Company sought to build Fort Vancouver on the north bank of the river. The fort was ideally situated as a logistical center for large-scale agriculture, a major concern in the assignment of Fort Vancouver. Chief factor Dr. John McLaughlin later wrote, In 1825, from what I had seen of the country, I formed the conclusion from the mildness and salubrity of the climate that this is the finest portion of North America that I had seen for the residence of civilized man. On March 19, 1825, Governor George Simpson wrote, I baptize it by breaking a bottle of rum on the flagstaff and repeating the following words in a loud voice. In behalf of the On Hudson's Bay Company, I hereby name this establishment Fort Vancouver. God save King George IV with three cheers. Gave a couple of drams to the people and Indians on the occasion. The object of naming it after that distinguished navigator is to identify our claim to the soil and trade with his discovery of the river and coast on behalf of Great Britain. So right from the get-go, one of the most important reasons for establishing this fort is to make sure this area stayed British. Now the site you're visiting today is not the original location of Fort Vancouver. Initially further from the river, the fort was literally dismantled and moved to this present location four years after Governor Simpson's dedication. This new site gave the company easier access to the river. And of course, the structure you are in is a recreation. The stockade, the buildings, everything built around you has been reconstructed from original accounts, survey records, and archaeological findings. The National Park Service has undertaken a wonderful reenactment of the Hudson's Bay Company Fort, Vancouver. And we at ORHistory.com certainly look forward to a time when the federal government decides that they have bought quite enough bombs and drones and decides to finance some more new buildings and new projects that will help interpret this important contribution to our history. In 1841, Lieutenant Charles Wilkes, commander of the United States Exploring Expedition wrote, The view from this place is truly beautiful. The noble river can be traced in all its windings for a long distance through the cultivated prairie with its groves and clumps of trees. Beyond, the eye sweeps over an interminable forest, melting in a blue haze, from which Mount Hood, capped in its eternal snows, rises in great beauty. It is important to note that the stockade that you see was never intended to be a military fortification. The construction was not intended to keep Americans or Indians out. It was built to keep the trade goods in. 
the stockade was erected to minimize theft. The site grew and grew as Dr. McLaughlin and Governor Simpson attempted to make the location more supportive of their enterprises throughout the region, thereby lowering the cost of shipping supplies from England, a voyage that could take up to a year. Taking a lesson from Fort George, they sought to make the Hudson's Bay Company as self-sufficient as possible, with Fort Vancouver being the hub of logistics and manufacturing. A sawmill was built a few miles away, and a fine grist mill was constructed for processing grains. A shipyard was established, which saw the construction of the 30-ton sloop Broughton in 1827 and the 60-ton Vancouver in 1828. Other ships were built as well, right up until 1846. And of course, the ever-important creation of foodstuffs cannot be omitted from this account. Agriculture sprang up with fields and stables growing around the fort. The first wheat to be grown in the present state of Washington was planted here. Horses, cows, hogs, goats, and eventually sheep were all maintained by the company. Much of the Hudson's Bay Company in the Northwest was eventually fed, or at least greatly sustained, from the food grown and harvested at Fort Vancouver. Now, we will turn our attention to the man credited with construction of this creation. In fact, he is credited with the creation of the state of Oregon. Please meander to the east, to the chief factor's house, or the big house, as it was called in the 19th century Oregon territory. The chief factor's house. Dr. John McLaughlin was the chief factor of Fort Vancouver. Although answerable to Governor George Simpson in this capacity, he was effectively in charge of all Hudson's Bay operations from nearly Alaska to California, from Hawaii, and then towards the great Hudson's Bay in present-day Canada. Seeking trade with the Russians to the north, the Spanish to the south, and even with the Chinese, the man eventually called the Father of Oregon would conceptualize a trading empire that was essentially what we call today the Pacific Rim. A quick note on pronunciations. Dr. John's name is pronounced McLaughlin, but we're all familiar with how the street name is pronounced, McLaughlin. Choose whichever you prefer, but for this broadcast, we're going to utilize the familiar pronunciation. a giant man, metaphorically and physically. Governor Simpson wrote of McLaughlin in September 1824, He was such a figure as I should not like to meet in a dark night in one of the by-lanes in the neighborhood of London, dressed in clothes that had once been fashionable, but now covered with a thousand patches of different colors. His beard would do honor to the chin of a grizzly bear, his face and hands evidently showing that he had not lost much time at his toilette. 
loaded with arms and his own Herculean dimensions, forming a taut ensemble that would convey a good idea of the highwaymen of former days. Biographer Frederick Holman, a bit crushed out it would seem, called Dr. McLaughlin a superb specimen of a man. He carried himself as a master, almost perfectly proportioned. Governor Simpson had once described Dr. McLaughlin's ungovernable, violent temper and turbulent disposition. To perhaps prove the depth and complexity of personality of this great man, other sources have characterized him as of a sympathetic and friendly disposition. The doctor could certainly be driven to violence, however, as was witnessed tenfold by the Reverend Herbert Beaver on March 19, 1838. The Reverend made some abrasive remarks on the domestic circumstances of the officers of the Hudson's Bay Company being in common law type relationships with native women, country wives as they were called, absent of a traditional wedding ceremony. Reverend Beaver, certainly in poor taste, resorted to defining these arrangements as being in a state of concubinage. This was just too much for Dr. McLaughlin, who set upon the clergyman seeking clarification. The Reverend, in his characteristic squeaky voice, said, I am. If you wish to know why a cow's tail grows downward, I cannot tell you. I can only cite the fact. Presumably, the weird fucking metaphor chosen by the Reverend Beaver was not the reason for the beating that ensued. Our guess is that the good doctor did not appreciate his wife of 26 years, Marguerite McKay, being called, essentially, a high-class whore. The doctor reportedly shouted, You scoundrel! I'll have your life! Reverend Herbert Beaver recounts the incident by writing that Dr. McLaughlin immediately and without my offering any further cause of irritation came behind me, I still trying to avoid him, and inflicted upon me several kicks and blows. I raised a stout walking stick, which I generally carry, to repel the cowardly and brutal attack but which he, being an exceedingly powerful man, quickly wrenched from my hand and struck me severely with it in the shoulders. But do not acts such as this make the father of Oregon's personage even more real? We see a fucking angry man, yet at the same time, as we'll discuss later, one of the most generous men that ever lived. This intricacy seems to only strengthen the doctor's legacy. Historian Agnes Lott beautifully eulogized that the most of people can act saintly when a heaven of prizes is dangling just in front of the trail, 
but fewer people can follow the narrow way when it leads to loss and pain and ignominy. McLaughlin could, and his Christ-like quality in his character places him second to none among the heroes of American history. Lot's praise is unparalleled, and an important comment on the good doctor to reflect upon while you're touring Fort Vancouver today. At this point, we'll have you proceed to the bakery, further east of the big house, where we'll discuss the food and drink at Fort Vancouver. In that vein, we at Kick-Ass Oregon History encourage you to crack open an Oregon microbrew or a locally distilled liquor to develop a deeper level of um, interpretation of the site. Just don't let one of the rangers catch you. And if you're driving on today, moderation would be key. listening ass kickers and be on the lookout for two more episodes in our three-part tour of fort vancouver we hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass oregon history today's podcast was brought to you by orhistory.com it was written recorded edited and produced by doug k crispin and andy Lindbergh. citations are available on request Check out our website at orhistory.com. There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can sign up for our exciting Oregon history events, pick up Oregon history merchandise, get a list of songs featured in each podcast, receive extra insights into podcast topics, and read of our adventures as Oregon's rock and roll historians. Kick-Ass Oregon History is supported by listeners like you. Visit orhistory.com and click Donate. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore History. You can also like us on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. And as always, we'd like to thank our friends at Eastside Distillery, crafters of Burnside Bourbon, for their generous support. And be sure to join us on our historic Halloween show on October 31st, 2013 at 8.30 p.m. at the Jack London Bar. Historians Joe Strecker, Finn John, and our own resident historian Doug Kent Crispin will spin true tales of horror, murder, and mayhem of the Pacific Northwest. There will be a costume contest with prizes, 
live music, and three burlesque dancers to help us pass the evening. It's a kick-ass Halloween party that you won't want to miss. So come on down to the Jack London Bar on Halloween night 2013. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kank Crispin. He's been known to kill people on the off chance they might become a historic ghost. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass.